and towards sin and his retribution upon unrepentant sinners. Let me just repeat that. The wrath of God is God's righteous indignation towards sin and retribution upon unrepentant sinners. And so, if you think about it like this, the wrath of God is the execution of God's justice. Because God is a just judge, he renders a righteous decree. But then his wrath carries out that decree to bring us to bring a, to pass the punishment that that judgment has rendered. If you can kind of follow it that way, like in a court of law, the judge will hand down a sentence after all the case has been heard, the, the jury has given their verdict, the judge then renders a sentence upon the defendant. And if he's guilty, there is some kind of usually a, a prison sentence attached. So the justice of God is the sentence that is rendered, but the wrath of God would be likened to the judge handing that man now over to the bailiff who handcuffs him, leads him to a police car and takes him to prison. And there he has to stay for the next 20 years. That would be the wrath of God, the execution of the just sentence of God. And I know that the wrath of God undoubtedly is the least favorite of the attributes of God. It's the least favorite of the ones that we want to think about or contemplate or meditate on. And I, this can be easily verified. I mean, just go to your Christian bookstore and look on the shelves and how many books there are on, on the wrath of God. How many songs do you know that have been sung or written about the wrath of God? How many sermons have you ever heard on the wrath of God? Very small compared to the love of God. You've got bookshelves full of, of sermons and teachings and tapes and books all on the love of God. We love that. We love the love of God we don't like so much this idea of the wrath of God. And ask yourself the question, well, is the reason why there's so much about the love of God and so little on the wrath of God, is the reason because the love of God is so much more dominant and so much more important than the wrath of God? Is there so much more biblical material on the love of God than the wrath of God? And that's why there's this distinction? And the answer is no. That's not the truth at all. A while back, I decided to do a search. And I searched the words, uh, let me find them. Wrath, anger, fury, and judgment. And I added up all the references in the Bible to those four searches. And then I searched these words, love, grace, mercy, loving kindness. So when I searched the first four, Wrath, anger, fury, judgment, there are about 1,200 verses. When I searched, um, where are they? Love, grace, mercy, and love and kindness, there were 800 verses. There's more in the Bible about his wrath than there is about his love, which is, it might be shocking to you because we don't talk about it very much, but it's, the Bible talks about it all the time. In fact, almost every biblical author Go through the Bible, Moses, on the way down through John in the book of Revelation. You can find references to God's judgment and God's wrath in almost every single author of the Bible. If you were to take a pair of scissors and cut out all the references to God's judgment, condemnation, wrath, fury, you would have a very small Bible left. It would be hard to be able to, to have a, a one or two pages without something cut out of it. Now, this sounds surprising to us because in our popular American culture here in the United States, we downplay wrath and we elevate 
love. And this has been going on for, for many years, since about the middle of the 1800s. If you were to go back in time to the 1730s and 1740s here in America, in New England, and the first Great Awakening, it would not be the case. There was a different spiritual climate, you might say, in those times. Jonathan Edwards could feel right at home preaching a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and nobody was shocked by that because they all believed that that was a, a biblical truth. Which, of course, it is. It is a biblical truth. But can you imagine today if Robert Schuller were to preach on the wrath of God? Or Joel Osteen? Can you try to imagine Joel Osteen preaching on the wrath of God? Or a seeker-sensitive church, um, instead of preaching about time management or how to reduce your stress or how to have a better marriage, somebody in one of those churches preaching on the wrath of God. It doesn't even compute in our minds, does it? We can't even imagine that. But why not? John the Baptist preached it. Flee from the wrath to come. We already saw that in John 3.36, John the Apostle wrote of the wrath of God. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul wrote again and again on it. John in the book of Revelation brings it up several times. It's not something that is um, infrequent in our Bibles. It's something that fills the Bible. God has a reason for it being there. So my plan this morning is just to do three things. I want to give you a biblical sampling first of the wrath of God. What does the Bible say? And of course, I can't do it justice because there's hundreds of passages. I'm only going to turn 13, just as a sampling from the Old and New Testament, just to read it through quickly to get your mind sort of thinking about what the scripture says. Secondly, I want to talk to you about our discomfort with this idea of the wrath of God. Let's explore that for a while. Why are we so uncomfortable with it? And then thirdly, I want to talk to you about the importance of the wrath of God. It is important or else God wouldn't have revealed it to us. So let's tar start with a biblical sampling of the wrath of God. You might be unconvinced. You might think that I'm just making this stuff up. So let's see. Let's see what the scripture says. And there's going to be a lot of them, so I'm just going to read from my notes here. But the first one is Exodus 22, verses 22 to 24. God says, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan, if you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Interesting, as we go through, I want you to think about this. The wrath of God is often equated with fire, because here it talks about my anger will be kindled like a fire is kindled. And you'll notice that the metaphors related to fire and his wrath go almost constantly in Scripture. So here's the very first one, and it has to do with afflicting a widow or an orphan, someone who's defenseless in that culture. God, God's going to take up their case. God's going to render justice. God is going to pour out his wrath if that takes place. 2 Kings 22.13 is our next one. Go inquire. Now this is King Josiah. He's just found out that God has given them inscripturated law. He didn't even know that there was a book of the law, and he's discovered this book. And he says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns. There's that fire metaphor again. The wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written 
concerning us. So God's wrath burned against them because they had ignored and neglected the scriptures, the God's, God's law that he had imparted to his people. Psalm 21, verses 8 and 9. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven. There's the fiery metaphor again. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. So these are the enemies of God. This is what the word of God says is going to happen to God's enemies. He's going to swallow them in his wrath. And then Nahum, the little prophet of Nahum, chapter 1, and this is verses 2, 3, and 6. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Pretty clear. Now, all those references, of course, they're from the Old Testament. And a common objection is, well, of course, those are from the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. I, we believe that. But the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. Okay. Well, let's test that hypothesis. Let's see if the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. Does the New Testament have anything to say about wrath? Well, let's start with John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 2, verses 5 and 6, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Romans 9.22 What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Their individuals are referred to as Vessels of wrath. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God promises this. This is one of God's promises. He will be faithful not only to his promises, but to his threats as well. Ephesians 2, 3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, what? Children of wrath, even as the rest. So we at one time were children of wrath. All of us, even as the rest. Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Extremely clear. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to await his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Revelation 6, 16 and 17. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now here we have Jesus Christ referred to as the one who's going to exercise wrath, not the Father, the Son. And that's quite a difference. We, he didn't exercise wrath in his first coming. But when he comes the second time, it will be a coming in wrath upon his enemies. And that's just a short sampling. I mean, I could, I, if we had time, we could spend the whole, the whole hour just reading verses. <clears throat> There's that many. But I wanted to give you a sampling of what the scripture says. The Lord feels righteous indignation towards sin, and he will act in holy retribution to bring vengeance on evildoers. That's the plain, clear teaching of the word of God. So let's move on then, and let's explore this discomfort that we feel with this doctrine, our discomfort with the wrath of God. I think it's safe to say, and I think it's safe to say for myself, that I'm not completely comfortable with this idea. This, this is, I mean, try to meditate on the wrath of God for more than just a minute or two. Try to, try to just think about it. It's, it's very, you have to almost turn your brain off because it is so horrific to consider. Today in our culture, the love of God is so emphasized that sinners no longer even believe that there is a God who exercises wrath. Now they know that there's a God of love because they've been told that dozens and dozens and dozens of times. But no one trembles before the Lord in our culture today. We have trivialized God in our culture, we have become so casual when speaking about the Almighty, like the man upstairs, or, you know, just, we've just so casualized and trivialized God that there's no trembling. But Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son that he may not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Churches today, I think, not all, but many are more interested in becoming relevant and being entertaining in their services than they are in trying to help the people understand who the God is that wrote this book and who has saved their souls by the blood of his son. And that needs to be the emphasis when we come together as a church is reality. What does God truly say about himself? Let's believe that and let's walk in that truth. If you survey people about why they choose a church or why they are interested in this church versus that church, usually it comes down to about four things. They want a powerful speaker. They want a great professional worship band. They want fun-filled classes for the children. And they want a comfortable sanctuary or building to meet in with lots of com convenient parking. <laughs> Those four things pretty much comprise what people are looking for. But you know, you can have all of that and you can have your life not ever transformed you can have all of that and Jesus Christ still not be the Lord of your life. So it's far more important that we really understand the God of Scripture. Amen. So we need to get serious about knowing the true and living God as the top priority of our life, whether or not 
the things we learn about him are easy to accept or easy to embrace. That doesn't matter. Truth is what matters. So why are Christians uncomfortable with the wrath of God? Number one, I think, is because we don't really understand what it is sometimes. Sometimes that's a reason. We have a misunderstanding about what the wrath of God is. Some think that the wrath of God is like God losing his temper and flying off the handle into a fit of rage. Well, that's the furthest thing from the truth because the Bible reveals God is slow to anger. God is patient. He's waiting. He's storing up wrath year upon year upon year. He's waiting and patiently waiting to exercise his wrath. The wrath of God is God's strange work. He doesn't delight in it, but he will exercise it one day. Some see the wrath of God as God inflicting arbitrary punishments on people who must then provide proper offerings to get him back into a good mood, kind of like the pagan gods of, of Rome. But those ideas are not worthy of the God of the Bible. God's wrath is holy, just like every other attribute of God. His love is holy, his mercy is holy, his wisdom is holy, and his wrath is a holy wrath. So we tend to identify God's wrath with our wrath. And that's natural, because that's really the only kind of wrath we know anything about is our own. When we get anger, we, we know what motivates us, and we tend to superimpose our anger on God and say, well, God gets angry just like we do. And that's not true. It, it is true that the Bible usually shows us that our anger is sinful anger. Not in every case, but most of the time. For example, Ephesians 4.31, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Or James 1, verse 20, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And because we are sinners, our anger is almost always going to be sinful. It's usually tainted with pride and selfishness. And so, yes, it is tainted with sin. But God's wrath is the result of his hatred of sin and rebellion. So that's one of the reasons why we're uncomfortable with this idea of the wrath of God. It's just because sometimes we just don't understand how it's different from our own. Secondly, I think it's because we think that the wrath of God is unworthy of God. The idea that God would be wrathful doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute in our brains. We instinctively feel like wrath isn't worthy. It's not worthy to be included in the list of his attributes like righteousness and love and mercy. Those things sound very lofty and exalted and you stick in wrath and it just doesn't seem to fit in that list of attributes. But the interesting thing is God is not embarrassed in the least by his wrath. God had never made any attempts to hide the fact that he is a God of wrath. If he did that, he wouldn't put it in the Bible all over the place. So God is not embarrassed. God is not seeking to, to, to hide this fact. He's made no attempt to conceal it. He's not ashamed of that attribute. And actually, he shouldn't be ashamed of it because his wrath is one of his perfections. It's not a defect in his character. It's one of God's perfections. God's wrath is not just a bigger version of our own temper tantrums. And so God is not embarrassed by it. We shouldn't think that wrath is unworthy of God because God doesn't think that wrath is unworthy of God. Now, let's talk about the importance of the wrath of God. As I just mentioned, 
one of the reasons why the wrath of God is important is because it's one of God's perfections. What would you think of a God who is indifferent to evil? That he was just apathetic about whether evil was taking place or good. Didn't care. Would that be a, a, a perfect God that you would want to worship? Not at all. That would be a blemish on his character if he was indifferent to evil. How could the one who's infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his hatred of it? He couldn't. How can God be holy if he is not stirred up to anger by sin? He couldn't remain holy and not be moved against sin. And God's glory is seen not only in his other attributes like love and mercy, but God's glory is also seen in his power and his wrath. So understanding the wrath of God will preserve a biblical view of God. If you don't take into account the wrath of God, you have an unbiblical view of God. Or you might say you have an incomplete view of God. You're not seeing God in, the, in his fullness, the way he has revealed himself in Scripture. You have a truncated or an unbiblical view of God. So we have to always seek to believe in everything the Bible teaches us about God, not just the things we want to believe about God. And there is a strong temptation. I remember speaking to our daughter-in-law once, and she told us she used to go to church, but she decided she didn't like, there's th certain things that she didn't like, the bad stuff, and she was just going to ignore, re reject that kind of stuff. And I thought, how sad. I mean, it might seem bad to you, but it's necessary. It's like uh, spinach. <laughs> you got to eat it. You need your vitamins. You need, <laughs> you need all of what God has revealed. So it's important because it's one of God's perfections. And secondly, it's important because it protects the truth of the gospel. If you don't understand that God is a God of wrath, you won't make any sense out of the gospel. The gospel's good news. But if there is no wrath... What's the good news? The Bible teaches that we are saved from the wrath of God. And that's the good news. You are saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about those two opposites. God hasn't destined us for wrath. Instead, he has destined us for obtaining salvation. So wrath is opposite to salvation. To obtain salvation is not to obtain wrath. Uh, to be, obtain salvation is to be delivered from wrath. And because the gospel provides deliverance from the wrath of God, that's why John the Baptist could exhort his hearers to flee from the wrath to come. So how does a person flee from the wrath to come? They flee to Jesus Christ. That's the only way. It's the only way. John 3.36, our opening scripture says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what then is the opposite of eternal life? Eternal wrath. You have eternal life, or eternal wrath. So you can say, okay, what is salvation? The gospel is salvation from eternal wrath and the bestowal of eternal life through union with Jesus Christ. 
And this should be no surprise because the Bible teaches that at the cross, Jesus offered himself as a propitiation for our sins. And I want to unpack this idea of propitiation with you. It's a word we hardly ever use. Only people who read their Bible even know the word exists, propitiation. But it comes up four times in our New Testament. Romans 3.25 says, Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2 says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Four times. The word propitiation is used. Some of your newer translations get rid of the word, but I think it's a mistake. Propitiation is a very, very important theological term that we as Christians need to understand. And the word means a wrath-averting sacrifice. A propitiation is a sacrifice which turns away wrath. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice which turned away the wrath of God. Now, how can Jesus Christ be a sacrifice which turns away wrath if there's no wrath to turn away from? When people say they don't believe in a God of wrath, they're denying the biblical gospel because the gospel has to do with being delivered from wrath. There isn't any gospel left if you deny wrath. What are, what's the good news? What are we delivered from if there's no wrath to come? Some preachers think that they must downplay the wrath of God in order to elevate the love of God. But the opposite is the case. If you want to elevate the love of God, you elevate the wrath of God. It's merciless to withhold the truth of divine wrath. Merciless to people. Because they need to know what is coming in order to be delivered from it. In order to flee from it, they need to know what's coming. And if you never mention it, you are being an unfaithful man of God. Folks, if Jesus, if, let me put it this way, if God is not a God of wrath, why was Jesus' soul deeply troubled to the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why was he in agony, praying fervently? Why did his sweat become like drops of blood falling to the ground? Why did he pray, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Now what cup was Jesus referring to? Jeremiah 25:15 says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. It was the wine of the wrath of God. Revelation 14:10 says, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Jesus knew that the cup he had to drink was the cup of God's wrath, and he trembled. He was in agony when he thought about that. His soul was so troubled that his, he started to sweat drops of blood. Now, you never find Jesus in any other situation so fearful. Right? You read his life. This is a soul occurrence for him to be so terrified of something that he is in agony about it. That tells you that the wrath of God is not anything that we can even conceive of in his horrors. 
If Jesus, the Almighty Son of God, trembled before it and said, Lord, don't make me do it. Don't let me drink this cup. If it's possible, let me pass it by. Well, it wasn't possible. If Jesus passed up drinking the cup, we would have had to drink it. And rather than that all mankind should drink the cup, Jesus drank it for us. J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Knowing God, the modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the subject. I think he's, he's right. He's exactly right. My friend, if God is not a God of wrath, what were you saved from? If God is not a God of wrath, why did Jesus go to the cross? The cross was the propitiation where he turned away the wrath of God. If there is no wrath, there's no need for Jesus to come and die. There's no need for the cross at all. In 1934, Richard Niebuhr wrote of liberal Christianity that it was a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. I thought that's a pretty, pretty clear statement. There you have the four truths you must avoid if you want to be a popular preacher. Wrath, sin, judgment, and the cross. Avoid those four things and everyone will love you. Uh, in 2013, so only eight years ago, the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Song was putting together a new hymnal. And they wanted to include the hymn in Christ alone. But some of them were troubled by the line, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They were troubled by that. And they wanted to change the lyrics to, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So they wrote to the authors of the hymn and they asked their permission to change the lyrics and the authors denied the request. They wouldn't allow them to change the lyrics. And so they voted whether they should include that song with the original lyrics and it was turned down nine to six in the vote. It was not included in their hymnal. And I think that's just a sign of the times. People can't stomach the idea of the wrath of God anymore even though God has gone to pains to reveal it to his people. So let's boil all this down, folks, to some three concluding exhortations. The first one is to fear Christ. Jesus did come the first time, meek and mild, a sacrifice for sin, but he's going to return as the king of kings, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. This is talking about Jesus now. He's going to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Revelation 19.15 When Jesus came the first time, he was like a sheep that's silent before its shears. He wouldn't open his mouth. In his second coming, he's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
So fear Christ. He is someone that you should love, but he's also someone that you should fear. Remember, Revelation 6.16 says that there's coming a day when people are going to cry out to the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the fierce wrath of the Lamb. So fear Christ. Two, love Christ. Remember that scripture that we already read, Psalm 2.12, kiss the Son, that he may not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Kiss the Son, do homage to the Son. Kiss the Son, worship him, love him, reverence him. Right now, the wrath of sinners is like water and a great lake bounded by a dam. And there's a creek coming in and slowly, ever so slowly, the water rises and rises and rises and rises. Every year there's more water rising in that dam. And eventually the water is going to get so high that it's going to spill out over the top and come crashing down and destroy whatever's in its path. And God's wrath is like that. Romans 2.5 says, you're storing up wrath for yourself. You're storing it up. It's getting greater and bigger and more, and it's going to be unleashed one day when God's patience is finally exhausted and it's going to be hurled against you. But Jesus Christ has borne that wrath as the propitiation for sin. So love him. Love him. Do, kiss him. Do homage to the Son. He's taken away the wrath of God. He has absorbed the wrath that was due you. The cross of Christ is the answer to the wrath of God that has been storing up against us. So love Jesus, fear Jesus, and finally preach Jesus. Now folks, if it's true that the whole world is by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, the whole world, and that God's wrath is going to fall on them one day, and that Jesus Christ is their only way of escape. So are those three axioms true? The whole world are children of wrath. Number two, God's wrath is going to fall one day. That's number two. Three, Jesus is the only way of escape from the wrath to come. If those three axioms are tree, true, why in the world do we sit still and close our mouths and not tell anybody about Christ being such an all-sufficient Savior? Why, why don't we tell people about Jesus? It, it seems insane for us. To, I, of course, I, I understand why. Fear of rejection, fear of whatever. Jude tells us in verse 23 of his little book, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Save them. So, question to ask ourselves this morning, are we doing our part? Are we preaching Christ? Are we opening our mouths? Are we telling anybody? Are we praying that the Lord would give us opportunities where we can speak a word for Christ, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody, not only talk about his love, but also talk about his wrath and how God has met the need for sinners and his son by sending him as a wrath-averting sacrifice for sin. So fear Christ, love Christ, and preach Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'd stir us up to fear you, to love you, and to preach you. 
Lord, we confess our sin of being silent when we ought to have spoken. And we, we pray, Lord, that we would be bold in our witness for Jesus Christ. He was not ashamed to call us his brethren. May we not be ashamed to call him our Lord. Help us, Lord God. I pray that our times of kissing the Son, worshiping him, would become sweet and regular and fervent. I pray, Lord, that our time of fearing him and reverencing Christ would become a daily occurrence, that we would not trivialize the Lord Jesus, or our relationship with him. We pray that our Christianity would be real and true and strong and lasting, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah.